Well, like many of you, um, I was excited about this opportunity that we might get together this evening. Um, and like many of you, I was looking forward to hearing uh, Brother Paul preach this evening. Um, Pastor Thomas has been a dear friend and a mentor to me um, for at least seven years now. We've, we've known each other a little longer than that. Um, but he has um, poured wisdom into me on more than one occasion. And I thank God for you. Well, this evening, um, considering that it's just January, we're only a month past Christmas, I thought maybe we could extend the holiday season just a little bit and perhaps have just a little more Christmas this month. Uh, I invite your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Brother Paul and I like to go back and forth about context. Um, my text this evening will be Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. But for the sake of context, we're going to read 18 through 25. Brother Paul and I are quick to quip with one another that text without context is nothing more than a proof text for a pretext, and that soon births heresy. So uh, with those thoughts in mind um, and with the liberty of preaching from the ESV this evening, I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not till she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. To them that have ears to hear, let them hear. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before the throne of your grace this evening, Lord, we come asking that you would bless us with hearing ears and understanding hearts. That as we look into your word this evening, that we would see the plain meaning of it. And that that plain meaning would, would take root in our hearts and that we would live daily proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a sin-darkened world around us. For your honor and for your glory, and for our good, we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, 
I do appreciate your use of a modern English translation. It's only been just a few years ago that I began preaching from a modern English translation. And I say that because <clears throat> there's something that gets lost in translation. Regardless of where you start from to where you're going to, I do not envy this young man heading to Thailand to have to learn how to um, convey his thoughts having grown up speaking English to something that is completely foreign to him. <clears throat> but as we're looking at the text this evening, um, I, I have a question for you. We see here a translation within this particular text that I read to you. In parentheses there in verse 23, it tells us what Emmanuel means. And while that's not the, the full focus of what I want to talk about this evening, what I want to, to ask is, what's in a name? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As a 21st century English-speaking Westerner, I don't know how we get from Jesus to he shall save his people from their sins merely by reading this particular passage. It takes a little bit of work to figure out how it is we get to Jesus, meaning he shall save his people from their sins. What's in a name? Names have meanings, especially when we consider names in the Bible. Children were named by their parents in such a way that declared the faith of the father and his hope for his child. What about Jesus? We sing hymns praising his name. We sing about that beautiful name, that wonderful name, that matchless name of Jesus. God the Son took on flesh and was given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Do you wonder about that? Why is he named Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, -E or, or better yet, how does the name Jesus mean that he shall save his people from their sins? Well, to answer this, we, we need to look a little further back. We need to go back to Numbers chapter 13, verse 8. If you recall, Moses is selecting the spies that are going to go into the promised land. And when we get to Numbers chapter 13, verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, the son of Nun is chosen as a spy. The son of Nun was named Hoshea or Hosea, depending on your pronunciation. In Hebrew, Hoshea means help or salvation. We read just a few verses later that Moses changed the name of the son of Nun from Hoshea to Joshua. And again, we have a little bit of English transliteration going on here. But there's meaning in what's going on here. There's meaning in what's being said. There's, there was a reason why Moses did what he did. 
Our English land translation probably loses something of the original sound. Joshua is a contraction of two names. The last part is from what Nun named his son. The first part is representative of the personal name of God. Devout Jews will not pronounce the personal name of God. So English speakers have to guess at how it is we are to pronounce it. God told Moses at the burning bush that his name was, I am that I am. It's four letters in Hebrew. We often see it in all capital letters in our English Bibles as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now some people think that means you're supposed to speak that more loudly or um, perhaps shout it because it's in all capital letters. Um, Moses had no idea what Twitter was, okay? <laughs> our English translators do that to call our attention to the fact that that name is being substituted for something else. And it may seem strange to us, but there's no consensus on even what those four letters are. They are the, the tetragrammaton, is what scholars call them, the, the four letters, the ineffable name of God. Hebrew scholars are not altogether convinced if it's J-H-V-H, or is it Y-H-W-H? Should we pronounce it Jehovah or Yahweh? Well, to keep from mispronouncing the unutterable name of God, Jews would say Yah or Jah, which is in essence a nickname, albeit one that is uttered with a most holy reverence. So Moses puts the short name for God onto the front of the name of Hoshea, the son of Nun. And we have Joshua. From the Hebrew language of Moses' day to the Aramaic spoken by the Jews who returned from Babylonian exile, we have two names that mean the same thing, Joshua and Jesus. As English speakers, we would pronounce his name Jesus. In Aramaic, it sounded probably more like Yeshua, which is the same as our English-sounding Joshua which came from the Hebrew Jehoshia, meaning Jehovah is salvation, or salvation comes from Jehovah. The angel of the Lord told Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Four, because... There is an intentional reason, a purpose for the name. Jewish fathers had the privilege of naming their children, and the names given to children were often uh, speaking of the optimism that the father had for his child, or it was chosen as a statement of faith of the father. The name that Joseph is told to give to the son brought forth by Mary has a definite purpose. It is not necessarily Joseph's optimism for the future of his child? Or is it necessarily because of Joseph's faith? God has sent a messenger from heaven with his plan for Joseph to name the child. 
There's a reason, a purpose. This child is the promised one, the long-awaited Messiah. And it is of utmost importance that he be named in accordance with God's will. The name of this child, this son, is a name that speaks of who he is and what he has come to do. You shall call his name Jesus because he will. There's no ambiguity in this message. Some of our other English translations are a little more forceful. It says he shall. But it's a declarative statement. It's a fact. This is something that is most definitely going to happen. Joseph, just as sure as you shall call his name Jesus, it shall be that he shall fulfill the meaning of the name Jehovah is salvation. He will. But the message is, is not, well, here's our outline. This is the outcome that we hope to shape. It's not, well, it's our sincere desire. It's not, he might, maybe, if conditions are right. No, Matthew is giving us a play-by-play -play account of what was happening before Jesus is born. Prospective. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he speaks of this most glorious event in his most recent history. And he does so in the past tense. Galatians 4, 4 through 6, he says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul speaks retrospectively. Matthew speaking prospectively. They're talking about the exact same thing. Matthew says that it is going to happen. Paul says it happened. It is the definite, eternal plan of God. Nothing would stop it. No one could stand in his way. Not even the evil, wicked King Herod, who jealously was sent into a rage when he heard that there had been a king of the Jews born. His wicked, insane jealousy called him to call for the murder of every male child under the age of two throughout the land. The foolish, foolish imaginations from the heart of man are no match for the will of God. The gifts the wise men brought financed the family's flight into Egypt. God's mind is set, and the best laid plans of men cannot change it. For he will save. At the time of his birth, the nation of Israel was oppressed by a foreign power. The Roman Empire occupied the land. The Jews were subject to authority everywhere they looked. Roman soldiers were the police of the day. Their presence was mandated by Caesar Augustus. Their purpose was to impose peace throughout the empire. And Herod was a puppet king who had no legal claim to the throne of Israel. By hook and by crook and through much manipulation and killing, Herod the Great had declared himself, or actually had had himself declared, king of the Jews by Caesar. Herod himself was not a Jew. 
He was an Edomite, descended from Esau. And the Jews knew it, and they hated him for it. The religious elites of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, had so twisted the law given to Moses that they thought themselves to be something special. They wore the right clothes, they ate the right foods, they attended the right ceremonies, they read the right scrolls, they said the right words, and they were the cleanest people on God's earth. But they were far from God. In their practice, they had the letter of the law, but they did not have the spirit of it. They were seeking to justify themselves through their own actions. They thought they could achieve righteousness. They tied up heavy burdens of legalism. They placed them on the people, but they did nothing to help them. The common folks may have seen the futility of this, but they dared not speak of it. Those who were looking for Messiah were looking for a rescuer from all of this oppression, political and religious. They, they wanted political relief. They, they wanted to see an end to Caesar's taxes, and they wanted to see Roman soldiers gone from Judea. They were hoping for Israel's glory to be restored as a sovereign nation. They wanted to see a rightful king of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, seated on the throne in Jerusalem. They wanted a savior. They wanted a rescuer. They wanted Messiah. But the problem was much worse than they realized. It was not the oppression of Rome nor the unlawful King Herod that was their greatest problem. Their greatest problem was that they were in bondage to sin. And so were we. With all of the oppression that they faced from the government, perhaps they weren't looking for salvation from sin. Perhaps some were. There were some who knew that God would sin. Messiah to save. In Luke chapter 2, Luke writes, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents had brought the child Jesus... To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus came to do for us what it was impossible for us to do for ourselves. God the Son became the Son of Man in order that man might be saved. This begs the question of some. Saved? Why do I need saving? What do I need to be saved from? Unfortunately, that is the mindset of many in the world today. Why do I need to be saved? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine just the way I am. In fact, I'm okay, so you must be okay too. There was a psychology book uh, called I'm Okay, You're Okay. 
The, the common argument today is probably more like, I'm okay, and if you're like me, you're okay too. And if you're not like me, you must accept me for who I am and celebrate my uniqueness. There was a time when someone asked, can't we all just get along? And the answer is, no, we cannot. We haven't been able to get along ever throughout the history of mankind, not since Adam sinned. And this is where the conversation will begin to fall apart. When you mention sin... When you mention sin and the seriousness of it, you're taking a stand. Unbelievers will say something like, oh, I thought you were talking about something important. You might be a sinner, but none of that stuff applies to me. You must be one of those people who believes in some higher power. I don't have time for that. You can believe it if you want to, but don't waste my time with such nonsense. Such are the thoughts of the world around us. Isn't that the problem? Isn't that the very same problem we've had since the beginning? Man refusing to acknowledge that he himself is not God. The world around us today goes around with such self-centered concerns. So long as everything is going well, everyone assumes that everything must be all right. The attitudes of the world are either that of the self-made man, the attitude of, I am my own person, or that of the dependent. The self-made, self-reliant, independent, never has any need of any help from anyone until something goes wrong. The dependent unbeliever sits around waiting for a handout from the government or his neighbor, or demanding that uh, rights that were once thought of as privileges. The unbeliever doesn't believe all men were created equal. He believes government should be the great equalizer. It's not equal opportunity from a common beginning point, but rather equal outcome, equal results that the dependent unbeliever demands. The self-reliant unbeliever thinks that he is where he is by his own merit, and the dependent unbeliever thinks it's unfair. Everything should be shared equally among all people. There shouldn't be anyone who has any more than anyone else. That's not fair. If someone has something that I don't have and government won't give it to me, then I'll just go and take it. All while failing to acknowledge that supreme higher power. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, you can pretend to deny the Almighty Creator God, but you're lying. You're, you're lying to yourself. You're only digger, digging yourself deeper into the depths of depravity, compounding your sin. The creative power of God is on display in His creation. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as David wrote Psalm 19, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God has revealed himself to his creation throughout his creation. And because there is a God who is perfectly holy, just, and righteous, and because we are not God, we are not holy or just or righteous, and we've failed in our God-ordained purpose to bear his image. We are all, by nature, sinners. Every person ever born except the God-man Jesus Christ is born into sin. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul states plainly, For the wages of sin is death. It is sin that causes death. We sin because we are sinners. It is what we've been born into. Natural man has only death to look forward to. You're not promised anything else in this life. It matters not whether you believe God is. You are still a sinner. God is not determined by you or your thoughts of Him. You are determined by God. Every natural born person will experience death unless Christ returns while we are yet alive. It is an eventuality that we all face. We don't like to think about it. We certainly don't like to talk about it, but it's a reality. <clears throat> sin entered into, the, in, entered into the world and death by sin. God created us to bear his image. He commands us to be holy because he himself is holy. We were created to be holy image bearers shining forth the likeness of God. Now, those of you who are parents you'll have some understanding of what I'm about to say. When you decided to have children, you probably hoped that your children would look like one or the other of you, perhaps both. When your children were born, you began seeing that they indeed did favor one or the other of you, or both. When we look around at the families among us, we see and often speak of the resemblances between children and parents. And as common as that is, how much more is there a concern by parents as to the behavior of their children? When your child is a straight-A student or a star athlete, a performing musician or a successful civic leader, there is no hesitation in your telling others about your child. You have a certain sense of pride, not the self-centered, self-righteous pride of the Pharisees. It's okay. It's, it's natural. You can be proud of your kids. You've got beautiful, successful kids, and, and you're okay that others see the resemblance and know that you're related. But what if your kids misbehave? What if they're constantly getting into trouble? Now, I'm not talking about kids being kids, perhaps a little disruptive from time to time. I mean real trouble. 
failing grades at school, can't hold a job, can't stay out of jail. I don't suppose you would have that same sense of parental pride. You may even be ashamed of their actions and not want others to know that you're related. These two are natural reactions, are they not? My intention is not to make God out to be a shamed-faced parent, but rather help you understand what your sin deserves. When we aren't what God created us to be, the failure is not on God. The failure is ours. A lack of ability on our part does not negate our responsibility to obey, and yet we lack ability. We sin. You know, the wages of sin have not changed. Our actions are still earning death. We deserve death. Our disobedience fairly and justly deserves the punishment of death. Just as a misbehaving child stirs the wrath of a parent, sinners have stirred the wrath of God. We need salvation. We need to be saved. We need to be saved from the just punishment that our own actions have incurred. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. If God is able to create everything out of nothing, and if God is able to give life to the lifeless, is not God just in demanding obedience? And is He not just in punishing disobedience? Why is it that we are all now not dead and destroyed, erased from the sight of God? Our almighty, holy, just, and righteous God is is also a God of love and mercy and grace. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. The angel said to Joseph, You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save. He will do that which no man has been able to do. And He must be very God and very man in order that He might save. All the animal sacrifices ever offered in the name of God by all the high priests have never been able to save. There's no efficacy in animal sacrifices. At best, there was a a temporary expiation, a, a moment of pardon of God's wrath towards sin. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have been ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices serve to remind worshipers that they were sinners and that they deserved the death that these animals died. It was a reminder of God's mercy and a reminder that there was still a debt to be paid, a reminder that a greater sacrifice was due if sinners were to be saved from the just condemnation and the wrath of holy, just, and righteous Almighty God. 
His name was to be Jesus because he would save. His name literally means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. And if it is God who decides how and when his wrath will be satisfied, we must also understand that it is his prerogative to grant mercy and grace. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. By these words, Jesus shows that God has a love for all of his creation. He extends common grace by which all benefit, but we must not presume upon it. He said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. There is meaning to his name because there was a purpose for his coming. His mission was the definite plan of God to rescue his people. That's what it says in our text. The angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. There was a plan for his work and a limit to who would benefit from it. He came to save his people. There's a definite number among all of mankind who are set apart for creation or for salvation. It's not my choice, it's not your choice, and it's not a number that any one of us can know. God chose whom he would save. Could Jesus save everyone who was ever born? Yes, if that had been God's plan. Is the blood of Jesus sufficient to cover the sins of all humanity? Yes, there is no sin for which the death of Jesus is unable to pardon except for blaspheming the Holy Spirit and not believing. God's grace is sufficient to save all, but he has not decreed to save all. Many will object that it is not fair for a loving God to save some and not others. I say it's not fair that Jesus should die that I might be forgiven. If God's plan and purpose was to be fair, no one would be saved. In fact, none would be forgiven. If God was fair, Adam and Eve would have died on the spot and you and I would not be here today. The Bible would end it at Genesis chapter 3 and there'd be no one around to read it. God could have destroyed all of humanity. God would have been holy, righteous, and just to do so. But our holy, righteous, almighty God is also a God of love and mercy and grace. And the fact that he chose to save anyone should be so amazing to us that we should spend all of our lives worshiping and praising him for it. That he chose to send his only begotten son into this sinful world to die a criminal's death should overwhelm us. We should be so in awe that we don't need a day on the calendar to commemorate his birth. Our lives should be so filled with obedience that comes from a heart overflowing with gratitude for the love of God that He's poured out on us. Jesus left the glory of heaven where He was continuously worshipped by angels who constantly sing of His holiness so blinded by His glory that with Two wings, they cover their faces. 
His presence so holy that with two wings they cover their feet. And yet he was moved with compassion to leave that heavenly scene to come to his creation. Born of a woman, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a cow's feeding trough. He lived among people. He saw up close what his creation had become. He saw how people treated each other and, and what they thought of God the Father. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. Even the people that God had taught how to worship him were so far from the truth that they didn't recognize the Messiah in their midst. He was rejected, despised, mocked, beaten, spat upon, humiliated, and executed. All in line with the eternal purpose and plan of the Father. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And the debt of our sin was paid in full in his death. But this wonderful gift is not given to the whole of humanity. Forgiveness is not granted to anyone who does not believe. The atoning death of Jesus Christ saves His people from their sins. And His people know Him. His people believe in Him. His people love Him. His people worship Him. Because He loved us first. Because we are forgiven by Him. If you're unsure as to your standing before God, I urge you to heed these words from Romans 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart everyone believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. The one promised in the Old Testament is the one revealed in the New Testament. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, and that God raised him from the grave, and that he has ascended the right hand of God in heaven, is how we are identified as belonging to Him. It is by the Spirit of God that the spiritually dead sinner is born again to faith in Christ Jesus. It is by His mercy that He quickens sinners to new life. The questions that must be settled are personal questions. So I ask these personal questions to each and every one of you who is here this evening. Do you believe in Him? Do you believe that all your sins are forgiven by Him? Is His Spirit dwelling in your heart, sanctifying you, perfecting you, making you more like Him? His name is Jehovah is salvation because Jesus and Jesus alone was born to save His people from their sins. He came as a babe in a manger to be one of us, to live among us, to live a perfectly righteous life, to keep the law of God perfectly so that in dying a sinner's death, 
our sins would be accounted to him and his righteousness would be accounted to us. This is the gift that God gave to sinners. Salvation through the blood of Christ. Remember that if he paid the price for your sin, he has bought you. You belong to him. If you belong to him, love him because he first loved you. If you belong to him, live for him because he was obedient for you. He's coming again to take his people unto himself. And we will have that realization of eternal life. We will be made like Him and worship Him forever. We will greet Him with joy as our loving Savior. It will be a glorious day. But that is not how everyone will meet Him. Those who do not know Him, who do not believe in Him, who have not submitted to His authority, will meet Him as judge. All shall bow the knee and acknowledge Him as King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. So where do you stand today? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you submitted to Him as your Lord? Or does all of this sound strange to you? If you have questions, I urge you to speak to one of the pastors here this evening. If you hear His Spirit calling, don't wait. Call upon Him while it is still today. Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. May God add His blessing. Pastor Thomas. God's people said. Amen. Amen. It's up in our Trinity hymnals. That's the smaller blue hymnal. To hymn 403. And we stand together with the gospel ringing in our ears and hearts and minds. And I think we can stand and sing. Uh, the words very truthfully, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh is born can make my spirit whole, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God, not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. But it goes on to say it's uh, what Christ has done and what Christ alone has done is the gist of the hymn. So let's stand together and sing 403. Sing all the verses as we praise our God and thank Him for His Word. Mm -hmm. 